welcome to another episode of The Art Salon. My name is Nico Bejarano. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends and family. And if you would like to support the podcast monetarily, you can do so through the website. Today's guest is Dan Rosenboom, who's making his triumphant return to The Art Salon. If you would like to get more familiar with Dan as a person and a long introduction that I recorded for him, you can go to episode six of the podcast. Dan was the first guest that I ever interviewed in the art salon, even though he is the sixth episode. Um, And so it's very special for me to have him return. We had recorded an episode almost over a year ago, and I I never got around to releasing it. So we thought we would record something more current. Dan is not only one of my favorite people to talk to, he's also one of uh, my favorite artists in L.A., Um, he straddles two very different facets of, uh, you know, the creative economy. And I I think that makes him uh, unique. And even though he's unique, he's also uh, an ultimate expression of what Los Angeles is so special for. So it's great to have him back. Um, I love talking to him. We've talked many times uh, about many of the subjects. He's one of my favorite conversation partners on and off the microphone. In this conversation, we ended up delving really deep into AI and the effects that it will have and is having on our industry. We're coming off the heels of uh, the writer strike and the actor strike where AI played a major part in both of the negotiations for these. And I must admit that I think some of the agreements that were reached are futile because some of the things that were being requested are asking the world to halt a technology that's been released into the ether. And uh, as we've learned since Greek mythology, once you open Pandora's box or jar, uh, you you really can't put it all back. And this is where we're at now. The, the question should be many for musicians. Um, in the times since both strikes were happening, a lot of the comments I saw from people that are in the creative economy were mostly about how we should stop this progress that I'm sorry to say for whoever thinks will happen, is never going to happen. We have multiple examples throughout history, uh, outside of the music industry, um, where new technologies have threatened old ways of doing things, and every single time the new technology wins. Um, There were many blacksmiths making amazing living when the, you know, automobile came around, and there's no blacksmiths anymore. Why? Because even though they tried to fight it, the horse was eventually replaced. You can find examples like that for so many industries that were uh, titans that are now gone. Uh, Think of Eastman Kodak. That's not a thing anymore. And even though they fought tooth and nail, you just can't fight emerging technologies that are here to stay. Language models in what we have seen with ChatGPT and especially with the image creation that has come along with it, they're here to stay. Uh, they're not going anywhere. They're only going to get better and better because that's one thing that you sure know about technology is that it improves at titanic rates. It is interesting that music specifically, uh, the other art forms as well, I mean, you can make examples, for example, with paint and oil technology, which uh, allowed for the impressionist period, for example. But in general, music has been one that goes hand in hand with technology and has made very, very lucrative deals because of it the recording industry, before it the piano, before it the organ. These are all uh, technologies that were adopted by musicians. The development of instruments comes from that. Uh, The development of the electric guitar, think about what that exploded into the scene. Uh, Going back to the recorded technologies, I mean, nobody used to record music. Then that became a whole industry that culminated in the era of the CD and that now, uh, you know, has cheapened to the degree that everyone can do it. 
We can either mourn the fact uh, that there were very fat years and that we might be entering lean years in technologies that are going through the wayside, or we can be excited about the new technologies and ask how we might fit into them. The same way that Beethoven understood how the piano could help him enter the homes of every German middle class family that wanted to create, you know, music in the household. And for me, in a way, although AI is very scary, it represents something actually very exciting. The last time that I had recorded with Dan, podcast episode that never will see the light of day, it was around the time, it was like around February 2022, when Vanity Fair had dropped this article that made a lot of waves through our industry in LA. The article was called The Minions Do the Actual Writing, The Ugly Truth of How Movie Scores Are Made. This article detailed something that we all knew in Los Angeles, which was, you know, how um, these sweatshop, quote unquote, I mean, they're not that, they're, you know, good conditions, but the sweatshop com composition, uh, you know, factories, essentially, like what Hans Zimmer has, where, you know, a main composer doesn't actually do all the parts that lead to the composition of, you know, scores for movies. As an outlier, they mentioned John Williams, who apparently does top to bottom, but most composers, you know, get talented young people to do the parts of the composition that they find either difficult or they don't want to do. So uh, talented orchestrators, talented producers, talented, you know, uh, software people, people that can notate quickly, you know. So all these people have these like essentially, you know, quote unquote sweatshops uh, that allow them to have gigantic careers and have, you know, absolutely explosive outputs throughout a year. And when that article came out, the thing that most people were saying was like, man, isn't it so unfair? And isn't this crazy how this industry works? And it is. And here comes ChatGPT, which will allow any one of these creative musicians or people that think they're creative to basically be Hans Zimmer. I mean, you'll just have to plug into your ChatGPT to orchestrate something for you, to take your little melody and score it. Uh, to fix your orchestration, um, to help you edit tracks. I mean, these things are only going to get better. And you can either see it as like the collapse of those sweatshops or the collapse of the recording industry or the advent of a technology that gives tremendous power at very low cost to incredibly creative people. I'm not saying I know the answers to what's about to happen or that we should all be as cheery as maybe I'm coming off, but I think there's more to be happy about than sad. But this comes with a warning, for sure. And the warning is basically this. Uh, the people that make jingles, the people that make logos, maybe even the people that record for movies, the people that score those movies, maybe their days are numbered. Maybe those people are fucked. But then the question is, who isn't? And on the other side of these language models, there's the input. And the input is the person that's putting the prompts in. And that's the creative person. And what this means is, maybe we're about to see an explosion of actual creativity, not so much from the people in the arts economy that are the worker bee, but from the queens. And that's scary for the worker bee. Because for a long time in the arts, which doesn't happen in almost any other industry, the worker bee has really believed that they themselves are creative in the same way that the queen is. And it, it's not true. 
I, as a trumpet player, I'm not as creative as the composer that wrote the piece that I'm interpreting, uh, nor do I actually put my stamp as much as perhaps the conductor or the person running the show, the producer. Uh, we are cogs in a little machine, cogs that get to participate in a beautiful machine. And yes, we, the cogs, should be scared. But the people putting the input should be excited. And that's the conversation you're about to hear. And uh, I'll be interested. Maybe this will bother you. Maybe it won't. Maybe it'll make you think in different ways. Let me know. <laughs> and uh, as a final thing, at some point in the conversation, Dan and I talk about music's failing compared to literature because of the short amount of time and the immediacy of it to express long thoughts specifically on the subject of love. And uh, he, he's not wrong. Um, music that's about love usually expresses the beginning or the end of a love affair, but never the middle, never the struggles, uh, and never the full scope of it. Not, not the way something like Madame Bovary can or, or, you know, another famous novel of that type. And I got to thinking after uh, Dan and I recorded that maybe it isn't brevity. Maybe we just don't dig deep enough into finding those meanings. And the reason I was thinking of this is because of some of the Shakespeare sonnets, which can capture in, you know, 16 lines, uh, which is much shorter than a song, much more complicated topics than a lot of the singer-songwriters. So as a gift to Dan, not inspired by him, <laughs> here is uh, Shakespeare's sonnet 116, uh, which is, to me, one of the most beautiful things ever written about love and, and the depth of it. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediment. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with a remover to remove. Oh no. It is a never-fixed mark that looks on tempest and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error, and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. And with that, here's Dan Rosenboom. What about AI? What about AI? I don't feel like an expert. Well, but isn't I, that like, does that scare you at all? Like with like, I felt like part of the thing that was weird about the actors union thing. Some of it obviously made a lot of sense, especially like the use of people's likeness and all that. That mm -hmm. was so fucked up. But um, well, maybe this is more for the writer's strike. But like, I don't know how you like block the coming of new technology. You can't. Yeah. All so maybe that, that's what I mean, like that angle of AI right. and music making. Or what do you want to talk about? I don't know. What do you want to talk about? I mean, um, what, you're the one with the prompts. I mean, you're probably <laughs> going to like have a whole essay in front of this. So like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any ideas anymore, Nico. Yeah, that, that's, that's well, just all right. My ideas are gone. Dan Rosenboom dried up finally. Who would have thought? Yeah, <laughs> who bought a sports I, car and I has no ideas <laughs> anymore? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, right. Well, I don't know. I mean, I I thought that could be like the AI thing without being experts. Like, 
I, it's been something that's been on my mind. So last week we were in Chicago with CJ and Ben Neal. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, let me ask you this question. Like, and not from the perspective of expertise of what AI could bring about, but just what we can imagine just based on... So, okay, so the last time we talked, ChatGPT didn't exist. And or AI... Or at least it wasn't public. Right, it wasn't public. And I think like AI, we might have discussed a little bit of it. I don't know if on I don't know. I, just re- I remember that we were talking about Godzilla versus yes. King Kong. It, it, that part is very funny. But... but but I think in su- at some point you and I have discussed this like vaguely like about AI and that was before the reality well, the- of we could see it do things. And so, right. I mean, the discussion we had last week with CJ and, and Ben that was interesting, it was just the basic, like a very basic question without very much expertise of like, how disruptive do you think this will be to like the quote unquote creative fields? Um and the reason I, I think you might be an interesting person to talk to about this is because you straddle two very different parts of the industry. One, which is like, quote unquote, the creative fields and watch one with which is the creative field. And by that, I mean, like, um, I think we've substituted in our speech. Um, and that's OK. That's what happens with language. We've substituted the word um, creativity with the word uh, imaginative. And so creativity to me originally is about actual creation of new things right Mm -hmm. so that's what i mean like you are creative in your albums in your improvisation stuff and then what i'm calling the quote-unquote creative side of things is like what what i do and you do at a much higher level which is like participating in the creative economy but it's not so much the same as far as creative acts. So how much do you think AI will disturb each of these facets, positively or negatively? I guess let's start there. Are you positive or negative about it? I'm agnostic about it. <laughs> I, I don't actually... Coward. No, <laughs> no, but I just don't... I don't necessarily think that you can think of it as either a positive or a negative. I think it's going to negatively impact some people's careers in terms of the way that they make money and i think it's going to open up new opportunities especially for young people who are starting out careers with you know more familiarity with this kind of technological landscape um so it's both you know i mean it's i mean and that's those are just two examples you know but i think with any new technology uh there is both um a disruptive aspect to it and a door opening aspect to it. You know, so uh, as far as like something like AI goes, I, you know, I should caveat, I don't claim to be any kind of expert on this, you know, but I do think that um, it's probably going to put some people out of work and it's probably going to change the way that uh projects are made and it's probably going to open up possibilities we can't even really begin to imagine right now for the creative process so i think i one of one thing i read at one point was really talking about you know this idea that like in relatively short order it's very possible that 
people at least in you know uh more wealthy societies would be would would almost every person like the evolution of the smartphone basically would be basically like a personal AI assistant you know that could just I mean it might even just be an extension of the smartphone or it might be an implant or it might be a like a drone that follows you around or something you know along these lines but like but that could you know you could basically just you know give it any any task and not only would it learn how to do that task it would learn how to do it better you know than it, than it did the previous time right you know not necessarily saying it better than an artist you know but better than itself the last time you know which you know leads to forward progress for the efficiency of that task right you know and and that's one of the things that people you know like that you know worry about with the whole like nick bostrom paperclip machine um thing which you know if, if you don't haven't heard of that it's like you give an ai the task of creating as many paper clips as it can and it determines that like the best way to create paper clips is to eliminate life on earth you know um and repurpose it into paper clips you know it's like a benign task that ultimately has you know dire consequences for anything that is perceived as an obstacle to completing that task right so that's a ridiculous example but it's it's a it's a way to illustrate that concept right but i think that like um this idea of the personal assistant is really close at hand and probably pretty imaginable for most people. Like if you think of just Siri on the iPhone, for instance, you know, um, you know, many, many people in the world already basically have a personal assistant, you know, and it's just going to be better. It's just going to keep getting better and more efficient at assisting with whatever the request is. And I think the big fear, you know, when it comes to AI, seems to center around consciousness or or whatever we imagine would be the development of consciousness, which nobody's been able to pin down a definition of really, you know, that's why they, there's that concept of the hard problem of consciousness, you know, it's like, what is it really? But it's the idea that basically like the, the machine will develop its own set of desires and wants and, and um, priorities and maybe even dreams or aspirations, you know, um, which we often kind of assume will come into conflict with our own. But I think that the benign aspect is kind of more um, apropos, like, you know, like unless you're kind of like a Jainist monk or, you know, something like you might not notice if you step on an ant, you know what I mean? And there's there could be a point at which the AI basically views us the way that we view tiny insects that we don't necessarily notice in our path you know what i mean so it's more this like just sort of obliviousness to our well-being that proposes more of a danger i think so i think like you know i mean we're we're you know scaling out in scope from like what it means for art artistic people but i think it's helpful to think about you know the big picture concerns here because then if you scale it in, if you, you know, zoom in on the situation of both what, as you said, like creators and imaginers, creators being people who functionally contribute to the economy by creating things or ideas or whatever, 
um, or pieces of art, you know, um, versus, you know, people who imagine new things, but don't necessarily turn them into economized things, you know, um, I want to stop using the word things so much, but, <laughs> but, um, it's, then, a new, it's a new year resolution. Uh, well, we're pretty far <laughs> from the new year, man. A lot can happen, you know, but, but, uh, <laughs> no, I, and so all I, I'm saying, it, all I'm saying is that like, like if you think about it in terms of how, it, how AI might affect those people, you know, getting back to the original point, like it could really aid in the creation process from like a personal assistant kind of point of view. And it already does that to a certain extent, like with the creation of like, if we take music, which is my field, you know, there's plenty of software out there where you can basically do something similar to chat GPT, where it's like, give me a beat in the style of blah, 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 blah. And then you get it and it takes moments, you know? So maybe the nuances of like having like a live drummer aren't there, but if you're talking about a lot of different forms of music that are popular today, live musicians have been kind of not really part of the equation for a long time. So, so that doesn't seem really like a negative to a, to look like, let's take the instance of like a young producer starting out who has very little budget, but is able to get some software to create this stuff. Like, the more advanced the, you know, quote, personal assistant form of AI becomes in terms of responding to whatever prompts, you know, then the more this person will be able to create output, you know, so that, so that personal assistant aids in the creation of work, right? Whereas um, the imaginer side is kind of this, this idea of like refining your quote unquote uh, imaginativeness in um, prompt generating, right? You know, so like if the AI at this point is mainly working on the, on the, in response to a prompt, right? Make as many paper clips as possible, right? Or give me a beat in the style of X or, you know, blah, 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 solve this problem, you know, then, uh, the more creative and more specific people can get with the kinds of prompts that they put into the machine, the more unique and, and sort of singular the outcome will become. Right. You know, so, so, and that's, that's something that people have been playing with, like with, for instance, like the, the, um, the image generation stuff is like, how specific can you get with the, with the prompt in order to like get closer to, an image that is kind of really what you were thinking of, you know what I mean? And if you're, if you're using that, like, you know, on a macro level, is it that different than making a painting? I mean, there's a lot of craft left out of the process there, but it's a different kind of craft in terms of like making the prompts. And I mean, there might come a point where there's no limit to the number of characters you can type into the prompt. So you could like, potentially you know (laughs) like write a thousand words and get a picture that's exactly what you were trying to describing right and then you know there's that i mean i'm using that phrase a picture is worth a thousand words but but you know it might be something like that and then like the imagination comes from the way you're able to describe it which is a really interesting point like i hadn't really thought about this but it's a really interesting point to think about in terms of like 
art because on the one hand you have someone like miles davis saying i'll play it first and tell you what it is later and with the prompt and personal assistant ai concept it's like i'll tell you what it is first and you'll show me what it is later you know and that that's that's a kind of interesting flip but it does change the like mental calculus and it does change like it 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 changes like the risks involved from an artistic perspective and, and like from a um conceptual perspective so I don't know. I'm kind of I'm kind of just like thinking about this in real time. Like I haven't spent a whole lot of time in my life like mulling over this, you know. But these kinds of things seem to be just like the natural rolling progress of of like thinking about what AI means, you know, in terms of creation. Yeah, I <clears throat> so it's so weird for me because there's like two conversations here that are so different in my head right now. One is like <laughs> Terminator AI, you know, like the, right. the paperclip. And and it's not clear that one leads to the other, but let's say it, I, I can see a path where it could. But yes, one is that. It's like the thing that um, changes society. But I, but I think there's an important distinction between the, the Terminator AI and the paperclip exactly, AI. Exactly, exactly. Well, th- but, but what I mean is like there's... Uh, the paperclip example is how we get from uh, ChatGPT to Terminator AI, right? Um, so that that's an important. Well, sort of. I mean, Terminator AI is like in in the the realm of like the films and the the concept is like specifically designed to eliminate humanity, right? Like the, the, a Terminator is a human killing machine, right? Right. Whereas the paperclip generator sort of does it by accident. Got it. Okay. You know what I mean? Because it doesn't care. So so let's let, let me put this a different way. There's like in my head there's like the 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 scenarios that we should be worried about as as humans. Mm-hmm. Right? The ones that lead to like catastrophe for uh, the race and possibly for all life. But then there's the more base level and this is why it was scary to me is like uh when ChatGPT came out, I can see in real terms how in not very many years this stuff is not maybe going to get better it is going to get better so it's like what you're describing image generators sound generators language models they're going to get better like very quickly and oh, really i really quickly and you know it should be it should be noted that they're already like scary in the process of like generating content i mean if you think mm-hmm. there there's a ton of music on spotify mm-hmm. that is ai generated for you know whatever kind of benign playlists that people want to put on in the background but it's it it's aggregating all of the information that exists on the platform and on the internet and generating music in the style of whatever right you know what i mean and that you know the better that gets the more unique each each instance of that will be you know what i mean and you know i mean you could right now with the tools that exist currently like we were talking about the the film industry strikes, right? With with the you know music side of things, like there is software that would allow you to say, you know, describe what you want for a soundtrack for a scene, and then get it fully fleshed out in less than a minute. You know what I mean? So it is an existential threat f- for the the way business has been done. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean like the business can't adapt. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it will. And I, I think so. The people that I would be scared if I mean, I include myself in this. I mean, I, I've been using ChatGPT, for example, for grant writing. And I really look forward to the day where I don't have to write grants because it's part of uh, fundraising I don't enjoy. Um, and I think ChatGPT will be so good at it at one point because I all I have to do right now is like prompt it a little bit. Uh, talk to it about the organization I wanted to write about and then throw in the grant question. And of course, I don't just copy paste it, but the things it reveals to you, like it's like, oh, I, that that's interesting. I would not have put it in those terms. That would have taken me 20 minutes to think about that. Great. Right. I'll take that. Um, but yeah, so stuff like that. L logo makers. Um, mm -hmm. I think orchestrators for like every person that's vaguely imaginative will be have the equivalent firepower of Hans Zimmer um, yeah. without paying anyone for it. Um, yeah, composer assistants, orchestrators. I think all of this is very scary, but it, it, the thing that I find interesting and and that you kind of see it the same, even though we haven't talked about this, is like, for me, there's still the problem of input um, right. because I don't know, and I don't know if it'll ever get to this point because I don't believe in like a historicist point of, of view, which basically means like, things inevitably lead from one thing to another. Like to me, there's no logic why Beethoven should lead to Strauss or to Brahms necessarily. Well, there, there's, right. There's only logic in hindsight. Exactly. And so, and yeah. so it will require input, which, so the positive thing is I feel it's going to be, like you said, an incredibly interesting time for the people that are very creative, really. And that's what I mean. Mm -hmm. The creative people versus the whole artistic industry you know like uh, the creative people like you i mean all this does is shortcuts right i mean it, it it'll probably well, give you a way to master an album quicker or to fix recorded things quicker or whatever right sure sure although i'm you know i'm not necessarily inclined to to at the moment pursue that aspect of it because there's a there's a component missing which is an appreciation for the uh, errant nature of human craft. Tell me um, more about that. Well, okay. Like, so what do you in, mean by in, that? What I mean is that there are, there are imperfections in the way that humans do things that AI seeks to, to not have, you know, that, that seeks to avoid, right? So in a mix, you know, some like a, in a mixing a track for instance you know like some of the best songs that we that we have loved for generations like if you actually take apart the mix like it are kind of like wildly out of balance with themselves you know what i mean like so certain things are really hard to hear other things are really you know present you know or some things are way too loud some things are you know distant and those are all the things that give it character, that give it personality. And that's like, you know, one thing that I find a little boring about like pop production, for instance, is that a lot of it just sounds like so clean that it's, it, it feels industrial. You know what I mean? It feels like they made a stamp and were able to replicate it the same way, you know, it's a little bit of a reductive analogy but but my point is is really just that like the things that i personally appreciate in art and music are kind of full of imperfections right 
Um, so there, there's a certain aspect of that that you can that is left up to chance when you have humans doing things in the process, right? That may make what I appreciate fairly niche. You know, like it may not necessarily appeal to everybody, but it's what appeals to me. So me personally, I don't necessarily see myself like having AI master a track or AI like, you know, help with the creation of this, that or the other thing. Um, just because like I, I've kind of staked my claim on the like fallibility of, of the human element. You know what I mean? Like that's what is interesting to me. And I actually think that like on, on probably a smaller scale than exists currently, but maybe not, I think there's always, there's going to be a, a faction of people who would prefer to see humans do it less efficiently than robots, you know, or AI, you know I mean? Like, like I, in a weird way with music, like I think like if music gets like more and more kind of quote unquote perfected by, by artificial intelligence, like there may be a push from a variety of humans who just want to have interpersonal interaction with people in space and like interact with humans making mistakes in music, even if they might not describe it that way, you know, like, I think there's going to be a yearning for that, you know, because, because it's what makes us, it, it's what makes an experience sort of, uh, irrepeatable, you know what I mean? Like, and, and, um, therefore precious, you know, and I think that aspect of art is always what's been interesting to me as a creator and as a imaginer, you know, to use those terms again, like, it's just that like, it's like getting close, you know what I mean? But not, not ever kind of hitting, hitting the, like the, the bullseye of that. I don't, I don't know. Like that's kind of a weird way to put it, but no, but, but I, you, I hear you. And I, but I mean the thing there though, that <clears throat> again, you're such a unique person to talk to about this specific thing, because again, you're one foot in each side of this spectrum, but like, well, Oh, I'll, I'll say this though. When you say one foot in each side, like on the entertainment industry side of things, i.e. film soundtrack recording, I am operating in the role of like a, a, um, how do I want to put this? I, I'm not the one writing the music or creating the music, right? I'm performing what has been put in front of me as a trumpet player. Yes. You know and I mean? so that, that's the question. Do you think, and I'll include myself in this because I don't do a lot of like creative, well, I mean, I, yeah, if I'm honest. Do, do you think that as performers that we've gone through school uh, on the, like on that side of it, like the gig side of it or the showing up and playing a part, even the orchestra, do you think we overestimate our um, input into like, like if if the whole goal of it is the audience, let's say for a movie score or for like an orchestral concert, do you feel that we, when we're in those situations, a lot of us overestimate our own kind of importance as creative actors in those spaces? Um, well, there's there's like different sides to what you just said. One is just like, do we overestimate our importance? Probably. I mean, <laughs> we we probably 
like think a little too highly of ourselves, you know, like, <laughs> and, like maybe let the ego come into play a bit. But at the same time, like if you're talking about what makes a performance unique is the imperfections and the inconsistencies, then we don't necessarily overestimate our importance, right? Because Oh yeah. No, so that's why I meant specifically our importance as creative members of that thing. See I what know. I mean? I mean, I mean, I think that's, that's a pretty individual thing. I mean, I think, you know, like a person can definitely overestimate their creative input on something, you know, but as people bringing unique performances to life, like it's hard to overstate the importance of that. I think, I think one of the things, you know, about like playing an instrument like the trumpet, for instance, is that you're always, we're not always, but almost always involved in like ensembles that are larger than one person, right? So in that way, it's always collaborative and your input always affects everything around it, you know, just the same way as like particles affect the space around them, you know? So it would be hard to say that the performance would be the same if you swapped out a player, you know what I mean? So in, in a certain sense, the 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 impact that a certain player has on a certain performance is is unique and incalculable so it's hard to overestimate the significance of that however i think that when you get ego involved it then people definitely overestimate their importance in a situation and i think that's a, that's like a desire to feel something you know validating about your participation in something but i don't necessarily think like from a conceptual standpoint like artistic standpoint it's it's kind of apples and oranges you know what i mean like like the ego part of it yeah i mean of course we all like think we're <laughs> so important you know but but like from the uh from the you know like actually affecting what's going on around us aspect like yeah we we have a role, you know? So I don't know. I mean, that's kind of a wish-washy answer. You know? No, I mean, that's fair. And then <clears throat> like, I'm interested in something else. Like you said, you're like a niche artist and, or niche like audience person, right? Like, um, you're not making pop music and I mean, maybe there's a good transition. Like, I think that these are the type of actually interesting things is like the people that do create niche art uh artist centered art if that makes any sense so like i you know you go see miles davis because it's miles davis not because it's bebop and you go see dan rosenboom because it's dan rosenboom right um and so the the do you think that this new era that has started hmm, probably since the internet of niche and decentralized art do you see it as a positive or negative thing i mean I th well, as a niche artist, I think I think of it as a positive thing. Right, but, <laughs> you know, know, well, but, but, but that's not true. There's some people that are very niche that all they do is bitch and moan about how they should, they should like, th it's, it's a travesty that they're not mainstream or that they, they don't have the, you know, grandeur of whatever. So that, that's kind of the question. Like, is this a positive time or a negative time? Well, would I like to be more famous? Probably, <laughs> but I don't know if I want to be super famous, you know, but, <laughs> but, but the, uh, the, I don't know. I mean, the, 
I can't think of it in binary terms like that, you know? So like the way I think about it, like is, um, is like, it's, it's finding the space for, uh, viewpoints to exist and thrive. Right. So I think there's been a lot of possibility for niche artists to exist especially since the internet i don't know if there's as i mean there's probably more than there used to be but i don't know if there's enough places for niche artists to thrive right you know um and i think you know thriving is a is a subjective term so people might have different answers to to that or thoughts about that but i do think that the one thing that i the one sort of caveat to that that I think is a little bit complicated with with regards to uh, algorithm social media and listening services, which ultimately are kind of what are feeding the generative models in AI, um, is a tendency towards homogenization, right? You know, it's a tendency toward um, uh, if things like like with music, like not necessarily things sounding the same, but kind of things going after similar um, audiences because there's a there's an immediate response, you know what I mean? And those audiences are then kind of dictating the direction of art and mass, you know. I mean, not in so much individual artists, you know what I mean? But like, but I think we all kind of fall prey to the the thought of like wanting to succeed whatever that means you know with our art right you know so there there aren't that many people who i well maybe there are i don't know but but it's i would imagine most people who are engaged in like producing art and putting it out there in the world on social media and or selling it you know are hoping for some kind of return on that investment you know whether it's popularity or uh respect or you know um (laughs) academic appointments or album sales or bookings for their groups you know like well any of these kinds of things there's there could be any number of things that quantify a successful return on investment you know what i mean but um the fact that we that it's very visible to see what artists are getting the kind of return on investment that you think you might want and what they're getting it for i think it's easy to kind of fall into a trap of like well maybe i should do something more like that you know what i mean and and i think the sort of continuous like struggle and this the the feeling of the of needing to be productive like 24 7 leads us in a in a direction of like sort of um cheapening or softening the aesthetic directions that we're going in you know and and again i say i have to say this on mass because there's plenty of individual artists that are that are like you know making pro, you know profound niche like complex conceptual work right 
but I just, I'm just saying like, you know, like when you take the aggregated numbers, right? Like, and you know, you're talking about technology, you're talking about like, what does the Instagram algorithm sort of see from a macro level as what's important to people, right? And then it takes the data from that to like propel forward whatever narrative, you know, it thinks X person should subscribe to, you know what I mean? Like, and that, and I think that the algorithm, you know, situation with social media is sort of akin to the paperclip analogy where it's like the paperclip generator where like, it's not trying to like put us into silos or like, or, you know, um, distance us from each other or, fracture our society but it's doing it because it sort of benignly thinks like oh this is what you want right this is what you want to see right and so i'm going to show you some more of that you know what i mean and and that's like this has been discussed a lot you know in terms of like how do how do we regulate this you know how do we bring culture back from the brink you know but but it's it's just um kind of a benign program that just is just doing what it's designed to do, which is give you what you want, <laughs> you know? So it's, so it weirdly ends up shaping the wants of people and shaping the beliefs and philosophical systems that people actually like subscribe to, let alone their like artistic preferences or their, you know, are the things that they respond to. And that's why I say in mass, it, it sort of leads toward like a, a more surface level interaction with art, you know, even like not even getting into the attention span aspect of things, you know, I don't know. This is, it's like, like I said, I don't sit around thinking about this stuff. So so I'm kind of thinking on my feet here. I mean, (laughs) the thing that's interesting is like all the technology that we've been heading into and what you're discussing um, in your own, like, art making and like niche versus masses and these are like things that have played out over and over and over again throughout history it's just like on crack now um because of the amount of output and constant communication we have with it you know like um it used to be you had to go to the symphony or the concert hall or like your local bar then the cd came out or like the records and recorded technology made it so you had it at home you had more of it you probably had more knowledge of it than any generation before you then now spotify and now like algorithms i mean that can just feed you well you know what you're describing is is gatekeeping right you know there used there there used to be a more codified um you know set of gatekeepers that would say like this is important and you should view this you should hear this you know what i mean and increasingly, the gatekeepers are becoming non-human. Mm. You know what I mean? So you um, you still you think they're still there? They're just they're not algorithms. a person, right? I had they're never programs. thought about it that way. You know what I mean? And I mean that's not to say there aren't human gatekeepers. There are still human gatekeepers, but a lot of those human gatekeepers are highly influenced by algorithmic metrics. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, oh, well, especially like, oh, so. I, I, this is this is doing well on Instagram, so we should promote this. 
you know what I which mean? is horrible because it's not real life i mean like like the, well, I, the don't 10, if, 000... I don't know if i'd use the word horrible i think that people are just using the tools in front of them well but don't you find you know it like, I mean? a, like a little bit weird like i feel like like that's part of the problem it's like you have the gatekeepers being informed by something like twitter uh but there's only a thin amount of the population on twitter i mean like part of the weirdness of of those algorithms entering real life is precisely what you're describing which is like some policymaker or some record dealer or like some art dealer pays attention to what's cool on this platform and it turns out that those people don't even consume either the politics like they don't vote or they don't buy records or they don't go to the symphony so you end up with like a, a guy for example i'll just do it with the symphony orchestra like a, a program that is like what the people want that nobody goes to and then they wonder what happened and, and part of it is like you're listening to an algorithm and then gatekeeping on a very small subset of a population that doesn't even belong to to your audience um right uh but this is not necessarily a new problem. This is this happened with people first. So sure. there's a great interview with with uh, um, I don't remember if it's an interview or if it was actually in his autobiography. But there, but there's this there's this stance that Frank Zappa took. You know, um, especially in the '80s, you know, where where he was he was in the late '80s. He was kind of reflecting on what had happened with the music industry, and he and it's largely tied into how he got his start, right? This is this is from his autobiography, so which is great, his, yeah, which is great, and everybody should read it. It's it's fantastic. So, um, he talks about how he got his first record deal, right? They had a regular gig, I think it was at the Roxy on the Sunset Strip, right? This would have been in like 1964. Um, <clears throat> they had like a regular gig, and the last tune of the set was kind of like a shuffle blues and they would like, you know, do jokes and, and, you know, like play into the humor side of what he was doing, like during this thing of the set. Right. You know, it was kind of a blues. And so apparently some, some older record, record executives were kind of bar hopping down the sunset strip and they happened to walk into the Roxy during the last song of zappa's set this sort of 12-8 shuffle blues joke thing and they signed him on the spot uh uh as the sort of like the next great blues band right that's that was like what they thought they were signing was they thought they were going to like like put it out as a blues as a blues band right and then he made uh freak out which came out in 1965. Interestingly, it came out like simultaneously with the whole like British invasion Beatles popularity, which I think a lot of people forget that like he was that early on the forefront of the rock and roll revolution, you know? Um, but anyway, so, so basically like fast forward to like the end of the eighties, he's talking about like what happened in the record industry. And he's like, well, when I got signed, like back in that day, like you had a bunch of old men in suits running these record companies and they had no idea what the youth were into. And so they would take chances and they would throw money at things and say like, I don't know, maybe the kids will lose, you know, and they had money to burn. So they just kind of like would sign all these like weird 
projects that like, you know, by the time you got to the 1980s could never have gotten signed because they were just so off the wall and just so kind of unusual, you know, but the, but it was really this aspect of like, well, I don't know what the youth are into. Let's see what they think of this, you know? And, and then you got, as those people retired, they got placed with younger executives who claimed to be in touch with what the youth want. And so then they started trying to game that system and saying like, oh, they're going to like this. Let's put this out, right? And then that led to, the, to more of like a formulaic approach to like what, what we're going to put out in, in the culture and what we're going to like make into hits, you know? And so this started with this idea that you can anticipate what is going to connect with the culture. You know what I mean? And, um, and it really uh, started this kind of snowball towards, I mean, like, if you think about it, like, if he's talking about this in, like, 1989, right, it's less than 10 years till you get Napster, Right. And then it's, then it's less than 10 years till you, uh, till you get Spotify, you know? So it's like this, this pretty rapid snowball effect to just like, you know, mass usurping of, of the music industry by like systems of gaming attention. You know what I mean? And I say that, I say that like, you know, going from executives to, to algorithms, right? You know, but it's all just based on like what's going to get us the most. Well, now it's called it's time on site. You know, it's like what's going to get us the most engagement, right? And um, and obviously there's exceptions to this along the way with you know artists that have broken the mold and done other things. So you know, but it's it's a big scale trend. You know what I mean? And and that's kind of where we are currently. And so the nice thing about social media is it has provided space for niche artists to put their work out and the, the whole DIY, you know, music revolution is kind of fantastic for that reason, you know? Um, but at the same time, it keeps kind of like imploding a little bit more, uh, um, a little bit at a time. Like now you've got, you know, Bandcamp being sold to tech bros who are, you know, saying they're not going to do it, but they're going to gut it. You know, they're going to like, that, I mean, that's just what happens, right? So, so, you know, and that was like maybe the last holdout for like people getting their own workout and actually making a little bit of money from it, you know? So now it's sort of like, well, how does an artist interact with this landscape where it's all about engagement and it's all about like, you know, uh, algorithmic, um, gaming like you know i mean there there's all sorts of you know people who claim to know like if you do this these this kind of advertising and this kind of posting and you do these number of things a day like you you know the algorithm might pick up your thing and then like if you get on this algorithmic playlist it might lead to that and then you're you know like you've got this runaway hit you know but even a runaway hit now i mean like the what is the, the thing like you need a, like a million streams to make like you know three thousand dollars or something like that you know and and or no it's like it's maybe it's a billion i forget what it was there there was some absurd this was like over 10 years ago now but um the, that song happy mm-hmm. that um was uh from the uh the original 
Despicable Me movie. Oh, the Daft Punk well, with Pharrell, right? Yeah, yeah. It, and it was just like, it was, um, you know, one of the biggest hits of, you know, of the, you know, time. And it made it like the, the all of its streams combined aggregated something like $3,000, you know? And it was like, <laughs> It's just absurd to think about, right? Because that like barely even pays for like one musician on the session. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, when you're working on productions that high level, right? Or at least, you know, a couple of musicians on the session, right? So so it's just like the 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 prospect of making records now just there's no financial incentive whatsoever except to just get your music out there in the hopes that you can then kind of tour it or, you know, uh, it can lead to other opportunities, you know, but, but, you know, <laughs> I was talking with an artist yesterday on the phone who was, you know, p pitching a, a, a project to my label, you know, and they just straight up said like, this is somebody who's been around for a while and worked with major, major composers, classical artists. And, um, and they were like, Oh yeah, I don't, I don't expect to make any money on, on album sales. Like, like back in the day, like I was getting like, you know, thousands of dollars in royalties from CD sales and whatnot, you know, but now it's just like, you know, I, I, I think they said like a major label release they did, you know, 10 over 10 years ago or whatever, like last year for, for that last two years combined, they got $11 from in royalties. You know, I mean, it's just like anyone who's out there who thinks that like, there's like that people are making money on album sales. Like unless you're Taylor Swift, like probably not, you know what I mean? And, and even that, um, the, the, the whatever so, she's making so from album sales has to be like completely dwarfed with what she's making from touring. I mean, well, yeah, but she's the outlier, you know what I mean? Right, like right. she, she is the exception that proves the rule, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, but like, but you know, I mean, for the most part, most like niche artists that I know, like if they go on tour, they lose money doing it. Mm -hmm. If they make a record, they lose money doing it, you know? And so, you know, it, there, there's a silver lining to this, which means, which is that they must be doing it because they really, know what I mean? because there's no financial incentive to it yeah they have and, to love it. you know for so for me like when i make a record it's because i have something to say it's because i have you know a, a belief in the artwork and i want it to exist in the world you know what i mean but it, but that's it you know that I, and because it's fun to do you know but like but that's a that's about it you know i mean like there sure i hope it leads to other things you know but as far as like it being a solid like business proposition or career move, like it, it hasn't been for a long time, you know what I mean? So, so when you think about like what is AI and, and all this kind of stuff going to do, um, you know, for, for creatives, like meaning like people who are actually contributing stuff to the creative economy, um, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, it's, it, it's, uh, it's certainly not going to, <laughs> in, well, I don't know how to say it. In my view, I don't think it's going to allow more people to make a living doing this. I think it's going to allow more people to do it, 
You know what I mean? But I don't know if it's going to turn into any money for anybody. You know what I mean? Yep. And and on the contrary, I think it's going to it's going to take a lot of money away from people who are currently working in some aspect of the industry. Um, and and you know when you have like you know that with with this whole strike situation and the negotiations with the AMPTP, like you know you're sitting across the table from Amazon and Apple, for whom entertainment is a line item on their budget. Like it's not even close to their main thing and they might actually do better business without it. I mean, it's kind of, it's probably a loss leader for them. I mean, for those two specifically, like they're in the league of their own. Cause yeah, I mean, uh, you know, they just sell a couple more shit on Amazon. It doesn't matter. You covered the expenses for the flop that was ring of rings of power. It doesn't matter. It's, and it's, it's going to probably increasingly go that way unless there's, major union busting stuff i'm not union um uh uh monopoly busting stuff you know like um i heard a report some of somebody uh is going after like potentially trying to break up amazon that's big that that changes the game if that happens but i don't know if it's going to happen they're probably going to find you know what i mean and they'll figure out some loophole yeah although i mean on a separate note like uh, an economist friend of mine told me this once that monopoly busting was a stupid waste of of uh, capital only in the sense that monopolies historically cannot last very long because they can't right. see the blind spot of of what comes what comes tailing them uh, mm-hmm. that that revolutionizes the market but neither here nor there but like I I I do think there's two things like first of all I really like what you like we're talking about there will be more people doing it, but less people making money to some degree. We it's a trend I've already noticed in different parts of the creative fields. Like, like people say it's harder to be an artist now. It's probably easier. Like, and more people are talented. It's just, there's more of us because you know, it's easier than ever to be an artist. It's not, it's hard. It's, I don't know if it's harder than ever, but it's, it's not easy to to make money as a bigger artist. competition than there used to be that's for sure right and and just you know to have a sustainable career yeah. in a in a an economy where the price of everything is skyrocketing yes you know i mean like you you know it's not it's not a money making proposition for the vast majority of the field mm-hmm. you know what i mean i mean even even i don't make a living from my artistic work sure I, I make my artistic work from the the money I make doing something else. Luckily, it's related, and I'm able to like you know kind of cross that. And I feel like I'm one of a very lucky crowd that gets to do that. You know, yeah. Not not to say that it's all luck. You know, there's there's definitely you know artistry involved, but but it's but I'm just saying like there are a lot of people who deserve to make a living at what they do and don't get the opportunity to do that. So that's why I feel lucky. Yeah. But I mean, like that's, uh, I just finished reading a book. I really recommend to you. I'm actually going to interview him uh, at the end of the month, but uh, do you know Tyler Cowen? No, he's an economist, but he has like the most eclectic possible. I, I don't understand how this guy exists. Like he can go and interview like John Adams or Dave Rubin or like an econ- economist or, a book person and he just reads so heavily and consumes art 
to such a degree he can have like very eclectic conversations. And he writes these books that are from many subjects. And in the 90s, he wrote one called In Praise of Commercial Culture. And the main thesis of this book is like he goes back in time and what he describes in Western art making, but I'm sure this could be applicable everywhere, is um, that we've bought a lie as artists to some degree, uh, which is that... um, how artists used to make money. So he goes like from, from basically the Renaissance until now. And what he's showing is, for example, like all the Renaissance artists and painters were unlike what we think the big money didn't come from the commissions from the church that came later. It was like they were artisans and they were making things that people wanted in their homes. And so they start as like a commercial product, um, to make a living that then transcends into something else. He says the same thing even for Beethoven. It's like Beethoven made most of his money apparently from sheet music sales and not from commissions. And he was like writing for that. And that's what gave him um, the the ability to write his own stuff. And and he he actually, one of his claims is the reason composers get more interesting near the end of their lives is because they've achieved a type of wealth which we see with somebody like Franz Zappa too, like spending his money on the London Symphony, but uh, that they achieve a, a massive wealth that they don't care anymore about the 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 popularity of what they're putting out there. So like, even though the string quartets Beethoven put out at the end of his life were not very popular, they're probably some of his best work. And that's what transcends time. Similarly with like late Brahms, late, late everyone, basically. What he's saying is like, that's the best moment. And... The, anyway, all this is to say that the point of his book at the end is that artists make their best work in complicated times where they need to figure out how to survive somehow. Um, whether that is like something like what you've found or... I mean, I, I, I just think there's like a silver lining here that maybe we're not seeing yet. And I don't well, know how you okay. feel about it. One of the things that we haven't really like talked about is like, is like, what's the point, you know, of art, of, of, uh, well, of making art as an artist, you know, we've talked about like the difficulty of like, you know, the, the current moment in terms of like looking at it from a career standpoint and an interaction with technology, you know, but, but I mean, I don't think the, I, th- I don't think the point has really changed that much in, throughout most of human history. Like an artist makes art because they have something that they need to, to get out and they need, and they want to say, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like a writer writes because they have something to say, you know what I mean? And yes, sometimes we do it in an artisan role where we're making a product, right? You know, but but for a lot of people, like you're saying, like there's other stuff that we have to say to contribute to the world. And that's why we became artists in the first place is because we had something to say to contribute to the world, right? And whether or not people want to go to that and, and you know, become fans or followers or whatever, you know, you're still going to do it because it's something inside that you have to do. You know what I mean? That's, that's what, what an artist does. You know what I mean? Um, you know, if, 
it's one of those things like you can have the best ideas in the world, but if they, if they only exist in your head, then you can't really say you're an artist. You know what I mean? You can't really say you're contributing those ideas to the world. Right. So they have to, they have to come out somehow. Um, that said, like, you know, um, I think one of the things that, that, uh, I take issue with in, in the description that you were just saying, is like saying that like the artists do their best work at the end of their life. You know, I think that's true for some people, you know, but I, but I think that a lot of music, especially um, some of the most interesting stuff kind of happens early in, in an artist's career where they're really kind of like piecing things together in a way that like maybe doesn't, isn't as refined or isn't as like, as um you know uh sort of big picture view but it, but you're dealing with like the raw materials in a way that like is really fascinating you know so i think like ultimately like i think what is interesting from an artist's output is highly subjective and it's like totally up to the observer you know um but i do agree that you know like the work that stands the test of time that lasts that we like go back to um after the you know person is is deceased you know um is is often not the stuff that that um i'm going to say like okay if we if we think about like with musicians before the recorded era right um throughout history like it's it's often not necessarily work that was like highly commercial right once you get to the recorded era it gets a little murkier you know because because um uh because you add the element of like the the playing and the production and the and the like human input from other people besides just the artists themselves you know what i mean like so like, for instance, you know, like we keep kind of touching on Miles Davis, right? Like, you know, you get something like, like Bitches Brew, right? Which is like, yeah, that's his work, but it's also everybody else on the album. And it's also Teo Macero as a producer, you know what I mean? So it's a collective effort to turn the idea into sound, right? And come, come up with something that everybody kind of agrees with. So like, it's a little different than like looking at a Beethoven score, you know, and saying what's, what's really here. Well, but know, maybe like, for the symphonies, but like, I, I think, uh, if you, I mean, as trumpeters, we know this very well, maybe less so as like a violinist or pianist, but like all these little ditties that exist for piano from every little composer, uh, or from every big composer, sorry, like Brahms, Beethoven, Mozart, even Bach. Um, it's the equivalent of recorded music. I mean, like, th all these ditties were designed for people that didn't play piano professionally to take home, and, th and that's why they sound the way they sound, which is very different from the sonata that is performed uh, by a well, professional, there's a, right? There's a big distinction, though, which is that I'm saying that a lot of the recorded music is a, is a team effort. I see. Well, but but you could argue that for the for the at that time, not anymore. But at the time, there's the team effort of the composer writing the ditty, the publisher that has to like put it into paper. Probably had some criticisms, which would be the equivalent to the producer, right? Like, oh, I think this has too many trills for for children <laughs> or whatever. And then you you have on top of that the printer 
and then the distributor of the music. I mean, there's a whole industry that was around publishing that is diminished now, but that would be, I think, the equivalent to the record industry now. Um, Maybe I think it's a it's a little bit of a stretch. Okay, you know, because just because, like, especially with like, especially with like anything incorporating creative input from like other musicians in the band you know what i mean like <clears throat> like you couldn't you couldn't swap out you know x guitar player in this band for the guitar player in this band and sure. get the same thing you know what i mean so that's like, totally become, fair i get that it becomes more of like like the music itself is more the result of collective input you know yes. um especially for stuff that's not scored you mm-hmm. know what i mean like that's like you know i mean like that there's that beatles documentary that came out like you know like that uh i forget what it's called but that where they're you know they they're all in the studio coming up with this stuff together going like oh well what you know i don't know what about this and that you know and like there's so many especially like rock projects like that you know where it's like you know they camp out in a studio for a month in the 70s and like come up with like some some shit together and it and it's like you know, it's, there's a lot of that in the jazz world, you know, because of the improvisational component. And there's a lot of that in, you know, like, again, like, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, Coltrane's Love Supreme, right, would not sound the same with a different pianist. Oh, well, and, and I think you know jazz I mean? is specifically like, well suited for, for that, for recording, because like you can have a one man, like, you know, you could get Art Tatum well, to go sit in a studio and he can record a whole album in right. an afternoon. That's, that's unique to jazz, I think. Well, but also like, you know, there's an unscored aspect of it. Yes. You know, it's like, like if there is a score for Love Supreme, but you couldn't get the way it's represented on the record you know, just by looking at the score. Yes, which is why right? they can because live off standards even to this day and still do incredibly creative things with it. Sure, you know, and and so, the, you know, again, it's like anything that, that has like an improvisational element to it, you know, um, it's just it's just different, you know. So, so and then, all, you know, like some, especially like in the pop world or the rock world or whatever, like the, the some of the best records that you have you know are are um decidedly commercial efforts you know what i mean um and they just happen to work out really really well you know like thriller is a is a fabulous album and it's actually like a great piece of art you know but it was totally a commercial venture (laughs) you know you know what i mean so so that's a little different maybe you know but but you know i mean I feel like I'm kind of off in the weeds here, but no, I, 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 I think I, I know what you're saying. And I, I guess, you know, part of that, the thing that makes me, I go back, back and forth, as you know, like between like very culturally pessimist and very culturally optimistic. And the thing that makes me optimistic about what everything that we've been discussing and like the era we're in and the era we're about to walk into is that some of the things, some of the albums that you've mentioned and some of the experiments that you're describing used to be reserved for either the people with no money, but like savvy or the people with extreme amounts of money, artists, I mean, with extreme amounts of money. So, um, thriller, I don't know how many cuts of thriller, the thriller there were, but at the time it was like an, an, a millionaire effort because you had to cut tape, you had to do, you had to have a studio nowadays, like any person could technically do thriller in, in, 
in a garage. I mean, with digital technology. Well, I don't know if they right? could do thriller, but they could do something. Well, but but what I mean yeah. is, a thriller, it, the part of it that made it costly, the the hours and hours of editing and splicing, you could do that now for very little money. I mean, like like digital things have changed everything. Microphones are cheaper. Uh, you sure. know, you don't need a room. And I I just think like that part makes it interesting for the people out there that are just interested in doing the work, which is like how we ended up here was also you asked the question, why do this? And that, that's right. a big question there for a lot of people. Well, and I think that's, that's why you, you know, ever since, you know, the days of like, you know, MySpace and GarageBand, you know, like, you know, first starting up, like that's why, you know, you see an explosion in the number of people engaging in, in, creative music and art you know what i mean that they're putting out there in the world right because it became cheap it became possible to do it yourself it became like possible to do at home instead of a studio you know and that i think is a is a good thing to a certain extent it does result in a lot of saturation um but ultimately i think it provides opportunity for people to like to if nothing else hone a craft you know what i mean um and uh then you know i mean that's that's going to just continue as as technology makes it more possible getting back to that like ai assistant personal assistant model like as as like technology gets more able to help you get the idea in your head out onto paper or on you know into sound or you know, into the internet or where, whatever, you know, but like translating the internal to the external, right. You know, that can, that's one thing that AI is going to definitely sort of explode, you know? Um, but, um, I think it's going to become increasingly difficult to turn that into a living. Oh, for sure. I mean? uh, but, 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 you know, now that we're talking about this and I just made a connection, do you think, uh, not just technology in general, AI, big part of this, but like we're talking about people being able to have studios. I mean, GarageBand is already in every computer that any kid buys, right? And I mean, I know I, it's not Pro Tools, but... And it has been for a while. Right. And, and yeah. so the question, and this is just new that I just thought of with everything we were discussing, like, do you think this version, this including AI, might be equated to like the new piano you know, like when pianos started being mass produced and put in homes, it created interest in the symphony because at the end of the day, no matter how good you get at home, unless you're a professional and you're truly creative, you'll never get as good as the the really special people, which makes you want to go to the concert hall. I mean, it did happen in the 1800s and, and 1900s that people making music at home made them want to go to the concert hall more because... They wanted to see something special that they themselves now had an appreciation for how it got created, how much practice it took. I w do you think that it's a similar thing here? Like more people kind of creating shitty songs at home might make them or recording themselves with their like jazz band at whatever will make them more appreciative of wanting to see like professionals do it or, or the albums that come out that are really special will seem more special. Or do you think that's wishful thinking? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I see your analogy. I, I don't, I don't think it would be an equivalent, but I, but I think that, um, 
I think it's true that engagement with an activity makes people more interested in that activity, right? You know, like whether it's, you know, playing baseball and then wanting to go to see a baseball game, right? You know, or a professional baseball game, you know, or if it's like playing music and wanting to go, go to the concert hall, you know. Um, I th especially with young people, I think it it drives interest in a big way. You know, that's why kids get involved in so many activities, you know. Um, I do think that we are in the midst of a fairly large cultural shift. Um, and there are some interesting trends that, that uh, make me reticent to, to really say whether or not like having the tools to do this kind of stuff at home is going to make people more interested in going and seeing it live. Um, I think that especially post pandemic, the threshold to get people out of their homes, and this may change even in a year or two as people get more farther away from the idea of just like, just being at home, you know, but, but, um, the threshold is higher. Like there was this, this study in this report on like, you know, people going out to see live music for instance, or really just like entertainment expenditure, you know, um, what people are spending <coughs> money on, you know, and it's like, people are spend are spending way less money on the small scale entertainment event going to the movies going to see going to a bar to see live music going to um you know uh i don't know local museum right and they're spending way more money on the massive event like the Taylor Swift concert or like flying to go to the met, met in New York, you know, or, you know, like taking a vacation around an entertainment event, you know, and then not engaging with anything the rest of the year, hmm. you know what I mean? So I, so I don't know what that means in terms of like how being able to do this stuff at home, um, will make, you know, the average person want to go see live music. Like I think I think we're in a, in a strange moment because of, you know, I mean like, you know, it's, it's always kind of, I think annoying to refer back to the pandemic, you know, but at the same time, like people's habits really changed, you know, the idea of being at home and home entertainment, you know, really kind of took hold. And I mean, even I noticed it in, in myself, like the likelihood that I am going to get home from work and then decide to go back out again is very low. You know what I mean? Um, whereas prior, I, it was fairly often, you know? So I, you know, I, I sometimes like will have to kind of like talk myself up and force myself to go see something, you know, and I'm always glad when I do, you know, but just that impulse of just like, okay, I got home. I'm like, you know, I have so much at my, at in my fingertips, literally, that can keep me interested or that I can work on or that like, you know, that can just fill the time, you know, like, and you know, then there's just, I don't know. I mean, I, I think like, it's just hard to say right now how, how that's going to change. <coughs> but I do think that the other part of the cultural shift is that 
is that you see this in a variety of levels of discourse. It, there's a there's an increasing disdain, especially among a uh, younger generation for institutions, you know, like that feel like uh, that, that feel like sort of like houses of the elite in a way, you know what I mean? Such as concert halls, such as museums to a certain extent, such as like, um, you know, uh, I don't know, whatever else but the but the but if something is sort of perceived as something for people of a certain income level right or or something or of a certain education level right there's an increasing disdain in the general public for that as a thing right so it might make people more interested to go see a taylor swift concert you know but it might not make people more interested to go see a symphony you know what i mean like because that might feel too old timey, you know what I mean? Or that might feel too like too elite or too just kind of stale, you know what I mean? Like just as an option, right? Without knowing anything about it, you know, just, just like, you know, as when they're thinking of a list of things they want to go do, you know, like might be pretty low on the totem pole. So I don't know. I mean, I think, musicians are reacting to this in really interesting ways like i i see a lot of like especially in los angeles i think there's a really cool movement among you know a, a sort of like the artists i know in their like 20s for instance you know are they're doing a lot of like house shows or like pop-up shows in parking lots or like you know secret events where like you know you have to like dm to get the address and then like go you know do this thing and I think it's awesome. I think that's a really cool, scrappy way to like get to the people, you know. But it also is it it also is kind of for like particular type of person, like myself at this point. Like, I don't really have the energy for all that. You know what I mean? Like, I can't I can't really imagine myself going to a house party with like a bunch of twenty five year olds to see a band that I want to see. You know what I mean? Like nothing against them you know just just like i'm i'm lower energy than that at this point in my life you know what i mean as far as my like social interactions go you know so i will probably wait to go see those musicians play in a venue where i'm where i'm more at home you know where i feel more comfortable so it's kind of the reverse too you know like um so i don't i mean i don't know i don't know what that reveals or not you know maybe reveals that i'm old but. No, I, I think you hit it on the head with one thing. Like, I, well, first of all, like, I want to add one more thing to the generational thing, which I notice a lot because of the nature of my work. We're now dealing, and it, it moved so fast. I mean, these kids are only five, six, ten years younger than me. And there's a huge generational shift in how they interact with, with life. I mean, like, even before the pandemic, the pandemic definitely didn't help in this. But these are people that mostly live their interactions not face to face. I mean, this is not this is not a stereotype. I mean, I I, I notice it. Like when I when I work with them, they're 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 super sweet and open minded and nice online. When you send them an email, they they come up as affable, and then you talk to them, and they're like scared that you opened that door. Um, they they don't and 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 if you're not comfortable in public spaces and you're more comfortable at home with your headphones, listening to that thing or streaming into that 
concert that's fundamentally shifting how society has interacted forever. I don't know if it's healthy. I don't know if it's unhealthy, but it, it's a reality. That's well, one thing. Also, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Well, the, the other thing I was going to say is like you brought up like elitist spaces. I actually do see like an irony in in the way we're interacting in this way with art because the very uh, I agree that this current generation and even mine, uh, like ours, sees uh, institutions as a weird thing, which I think is a very bad uh, development in our society. But that aside, they have decided that certain institutions are elitist and, and it's top to bottom. It could be the, the museum, the concert hall, but it can also be the bar and the the jazz club and it can also be the the rock club it can also be the taylor swift concert it, it's everything it's a huge spectrum that they've decided is elitist because it's handled institutionally right the irony is like many of these people that feel that are in the elite like m most people that i hear have these discussions are going to like top tier colleges and and trying to get into these professions. They just don't like that they're on the other side of the door right now. And and just to finish, like the concerts that you describe, for example, I don't know if they ironically realize how elitist these are. Like invitation only, uh, at an undisclosed location, hard to get to, no ADA. Uh, you know, like uh, it, it's so crazy. To me and the, the places that they accuse of being elitist on the other hand many museums are free many uh, visits to the concert hall are ten dollars jazz clubs are not particularly expensive unless you go to vibrato you know what i mean like going to a bar to to hear you is not the most expensive endeavor in the world um and you see the very people that these new generations are trying to protect from this elitism those people are perfectly happy spending money i mean i see middle class and lower middle class people at baseball games, Disneyland, like it's not a money problem. But if you like, basically what I'm saying is like the, the, the added issue to me is that we also have a number of generations now that are working against themselves because they think they're solving an issue by actually creating a different type of elite. I mean, and I'm not against elites in general. I think that they can be very positive, but they are, or they claim to be, and they're generating an issue that doesn't exist in my head. Um, well, I, I think, you know, part of it is just also that like, it's perfectly natural for, uh, for every generation to rail against what they see as the system. You know what I mean? Like, and that goes back a long way. You know what I mean? Like that's a natural human tendency. Like, you know, like if you want to talk about it, like even from a like human psychology standpoint, they were talking about this in ancient Greece, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, you know, so, so like, I think it's a, it's a natural tendency to reject where you come from in a certain way. Right. So it's like talk about people at like, you know, Ivy league institutions or like, you know, expensive private colleges, right. You know, saying like railing against the quote unquote elite or the system or this, that, or the other thing. That's just, that's the same thing as like, you know, <laughs> kill your father, like, yeah. like in a, you know, anybody listening to that, that's not a directive. Don't go do that. But my, my point is it's like as an allegory, you know, like in myth, yeah. right. You know, like going all the way back to like the earliest tales of the human condition, right? Like that's a, that's just a. Across cultures. Across cultures, like the world over, you know? So, so I think it's like. 
it's kind of just a natural human tendency and it gets fostered when, when you have like a university situation where a lot of these people of the same age are in close quarters with each other talking, you know, like that's, that's something, you know, to, to, I think as you know, people who are past that age now, I think that's something that we have to be careful of when we comment on it, you know, because like, because it's, it's, it's not, something insane or weird about this generation it's just what humans do and we did it too oh yeah <laughs> you but know you know what's what the so difference like, but we go back to what we were talking about i mean the the only difference is that those people this generation is particularly online particularly good at it and obviously because they grew up in it and the powers that be have decided that whatever gets said on twitter or instagram or facebook is real life and that's i think what's new like I, I agree with you. Youth has always been youth. I mean, we did it, everyone but I, did it. But, but but the difference is there was always somebody on the other side, including our own parents, that were like, okay, yeah, yeah. Good for you. Good for you. You know? Right. <laughs> you know? But I but I think also like like it's dangerous to say that something like Twitter or Instagram or Facebook is not real life because I because I think it is. I mean, I think when you talk about something like real life, all of this experience goes into that pot. You know what I mean? Like somebody can actually have like a real human reaction to something that happens online, right? That's a real thing, you know? So, to, so it is real life in a certain sense. It's just not face to face, right? Well, but you know? what I mean, like, so let me be clear. What I meant is not real life, like it's digital, but like that the expression of a couple thousand elite college people and, uh, people working on every side of the political spectrum. I don't mean this to be political, but that the opinion of a couple thousand people represents the will of a people. And that's what I mean, that it's not real life. Right. Like, like, well, what, what has always been true also is that like, you know, the, the loudest voices are the ones that like, you know, get the most attention. It's like, it's the, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the, gets the oil. Right. Or the, you know, it's a, so like, now it's easy to amplify via digital platforms a you know a particular point of view you know um especially one that is that is divisive you know what i mean like that's that games the algorithm if you want to go back to that concept right you know right. like because people it's designed to create a reaction and the more people react and interact with the with the post the more the algorithm shows it to more people, right? Because mm -hmm. that's what it thinks we want. <laughs> you know, that's, that's why the polarization happens, right? You know, it's because like the most contentious things are the amplified the most unintentionally, like just, just dispassionately by these al algorithmic programs, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so it's, it's the paperclip problem, you know, but the, the you know the other thing to remember is that like i don't know when i was 22 if my boss or or like somebody higher up at a at a at an organization came to talk to me about something i'd be a little intimidated i'd be a little like you know uh, not necessarily my my most eloquent self in that moment you know and, and so I think when I, like I teach at a couple of colleges, right? And when I see students interacting with each other face to face, it doesn't seem like they're uncomfortable. You know what I mean? They seem perfectly like, 
happy to do that. You know, so I don't, I don't necessarily think, you know, just because they're online more that there's like a reticence to be face to face. However, I do think that, um, I do think that if I had one criticism of, of like the students that I see, there's a, there seems to be a tendency to think that you can understand something more quickly than I think is actually possible. It's it meaning like it's possible to like, you know, like, like I deal with it with, with albums versus tracks with my students, right? Like a lot of students will have listened to a track from a particular artist, right? But they haven't listened to the whole record. Mm. Right. And then they, th and they think they know what the artist is about. Or at least they have what they have an idea about it. You know what I mean? Whereas like an artist might want to give completely opposing views of their, their approach or craft or, or identity on subsequent tracks. You know what I mean? So they become a more complete, complex picture, right? You know, and um, I think that's a, that's a sort of, metaphoric distillation of what I think I see happening with online stuff is like, you know, to take a tweet and say, this is what this person's about. You know, this person is, is X because they tweet tweeted that, you know, is, is a very, uh, it's, it's a very, um, sort of prosaic way of understanding the world, right? Like things aren't that simple. They're not easily distilled. It takes a lot of serious contemplation to get to anything resembling like a deep understanding, right? You know, and, and it seems like that's deprioritized in the digital sphere, right? And that does make its way into, into real life, quote unquote, you know, into face-to-face -face interactions because we're so used to like, it's kind of like miniaturizing ideas, you know, like, even with, with music, like, you know, like, you know, the, I don't think there's this limit anymore, but at when, you know, videos on Instagram first started, it's like, they could be like one minute long, yeah. not a second longer. Right. So there was like this move to distill whatever you're trying to say into one minute. Right. And the stories were originally only 15 seconds. So then it was like, okay, how can you say the whole thing in 15 seconds? Right. And there's an interesting exercise in that, but it's the same thing with Twitter. Like, idea in 140 characters or less right and it was it, in a way twitter was better when it was only 140 characters like when they made it longer it got it got more uh, became more of a dumpster fire and now it's just, i mean with x and stuff it's just like it's completely toxic and it, i won't go there but but the the point is i think this like this move towards like distilling things into smaller and smaller chunks of of data and rushing to understand a situation based on a small phrase or a small uh, statement is sucking the complexity out of the world. You know, well, in not, I mean, the world is still plenty complex, but I'm saying like in the, that concept of like trying to understand something that way, it, it removes nuance. It removes complexity from the equation. It removes like, you know, th it, uh, a lot of uh, 
intelligence, I think. I mean, like, I think, what was it? Is I, f- I forget who it was. Was it maybe T.S. Eliot or something? Like, was it was talking about, like, the mark of intelligence is being able to hold, like, two conflicting ideas in your mind at once. <laughs> yeah. So something like that, you know, but, like, there, there's also just this, this sort of like you know I mean, we see this right now with the with you know people's opinions about about global politics you know there's there's a there's an immediate need to take a binary stance on something right and that's an impassioned response and there's a lot of good conversations that are happening because of it um <clears throat> but i think ultimately speaking nothing almost nothing is ever that binary you know what i mean like that the whole concept of a binary way of looking at the world is antithetical to organic life right and getting back to the the technology side of things like ai you know the source code for ai is zeros and ones it's a binary code you know and so if we continue to program it with this idea of like this or that right it's it's not going to live in sync with organic life which is highly complicated definitely way beyond binary you know and um difficult to understand i mean a lot of my sort of philosophical contemplation around art it came from this like this concept that I encountered in college called parallax, which is it, it's it's not a super complicated idea. It's just that like anything can be viewed from infinite points of view, right? Like if you take a uh, take a stone and you suspend it in space, right? There are physically infinite points of view that you can view that stone from, right? You know, so once you start placing other kinds of concerns on it, those of points of view diminishes right because you, there are certain parameters that negate other points of view you know what i mean but the, the if you take that as a starting place it's an interesting way to understand your own preferences and your own like philosophical concepts right because you start saying like okay well if i can look at this situation from any point of view you know you can you can go through the process of gaming certain things out or maybe you don't need to because you've already done that in in some form of development you know but it just it's just a it just highlights the complexity you know and the murkiness of of the concept of understanding you know i mean you, you think about like the quote unquote search for truth right you know like this has been ongoing since the dawn of civilization right you know and like any you know like there's like what is it a buddhist con that's like anyone who claims to know the truth is lying (laughs) you know you know what i mean like so so i don't know i don't i'm kind of getting beyond myself but well what you're also describing is also cross-cultural too like like sure the the you know if you for my favorite version of this is like the the faust you know I like Gotas, but the, like the idea that this man exchanges his own soul for knowledge, like it's it's and and that it turns out to be a bad bargain because you can't really attain it fully. And 
the thing that I think it, I I th I think they're like I like this idea that you're saying that you you chisel away perspectives to find like art or or like the way you express things. I think that that's I think part of the problem or not the problem, but I I think I I have a a vision of the way art operates or what we do as artists or even as practitioners or as um, interpreters, which is that I don't know if, if art making is about um, expression as much as it is about communication, which is kind of how I see what you're talking about. It's like uh, your role in in what you're describing is basically to communicate best what point of view you're trying to chisel away from these million or infinite points of view. Um, the object Maybe, itself is not I, the, you know. I don't know if there's a, I think that's a distinction without a difference though. I mean, like how is expression and communication different? I mean, like to, com to express something you communicate and to communicate something you express, you know, like. Well, but the success of a work of art, in my opinion, is in how well it communicated that thing so like if i'm trying to make a like let's be vague here like i'm gonna make a song about love it, it's successful in as in as much as i was able to to communicate that correctly not so much that i was trying to express love but that i communicated correctly my point of view on it yeah, but, but also like let's, let's just take that example like aubrey and i were having this debate the other night you know, or not a debate. We were just like kind of like talking about this idea that like that almost, um, I mean, uh, the vast majority of songs about love, right? Only deal with this like sort of like, like, you know, uh, almost like adolescent view of love. Where it's early like, stages, it's like, early it's stages. Like, yeah. Right. Early <laughs> stages of love or like, like a simple early like or end attraction stages. type of thing or like a, or yeah, or end stages or like, you, you know, it's, it's very, again, kind of like, you know, binary, either it's like, you know, overwhelming love or it's like love ending, you know, but, it, but it rarely gets into like the complexity that like a long lasting loving relationship can get into like the, like, you know, all of the, the like sort of um, unseemly things that it in, entails, you know, like, you know, dealing with health, dealing with, you know, um, stress and circumstance and, and, you know, like building a life together and all that kind of stuff. Like, cause, because it's hard to write about, it's really difficult and it's very personal. It's very like, you know, um, do you think that do you think Again, what you're very, saying applies non binary? Also, you know? Do you think that that is also applies to literature, for example? Because I think I think part of the, the the reason I brought this up, and I'm glad that you like that the love thing and and the way that you're like we were just talking about uh, the problem with immediacy for artists in a way, and how Twitter and everything else is kind of massaging that to even be quicker. And in what you're saying, I agree. Like most love songs, for example, especially pop. Uh, yeah, they only deal with these binaries, but do do you see the same thing in like great literature? Because I mean, the the advantage that great literature has it can take long time to precisely, yeah, right. 
you know, and and a lot of times, you know, I mean, if if you think about it, like from a standpoint of storytelling, right? <clears throat> most stories, like, you know, they they do exist, but like most stories aren't going to be like, here's this person's entire life, you know what I mean? And to really get into like, you know, the nature of like what like a long lasting, like complicated, deep love relationship, you know, I mean, you could be talking about. 30 years, 50 years, you know, like you could be talking about a very long trajectory that would have many stories within it. So usually storytelling will focus on like a story within that, you know what I mean? Or a couple stories that are intertwined within that, you know what I mean? Because it keeps it focused, right? It's not, it's, it's not as sprawling, right? But there's in literature, there is the opportunity for sprawling narrative, you know, and we do have examples of that, you know, so, so I don't know. I think, I think in the, in the aspect that a lot of times songs are aiming at storytelling or, you know, even painting to a certain extent is like storytelling sort of, you know, like, well, it is, Yeah, but, you're capturing but, a moment, you know, you're capturing a moment, you know, photography, you know, like the best, the best art that we have conveys a story of some sort not necessarily narrative, but, but, you know, expressive, um, communicative, you know, to use your words, right. You know, the, the, but ultimately to use the words like, of the oppressor. Yeah. But, but ultimately like, you know, humans do like focus because it makes it, it makes it direct. It makes it sort of like understandable in, you know, simpler terms. Right. You know, so, so there's a balance with regards to art, you know, I think especially effective art that communicates and expresses the, uh, the, there's a balance between the complexity and the, the, the focus, you know what I mean? Um, and, and ideally they, they serve to, to deepen each other, you know, like the, the complexity serves to deepen the focus and the focus to serves to deep, deepen the complexity, you know? Um, and I think that's where you get like, um, you know, or maybe that what you're talking about, like, you know, the most communic successfully communicative art, you know what I mean? But I don't know. I mean, like, you know, people have been debating this kind of stuff for as long as we've been making art. Well, so, I, I do. Let me ask you something. And maybe this can be the last thing in your own, um, life. So this is a two part question. How important then based on everything we've been talking about to you is the introspection part of it. That's one part of it. And if it is important, how do you force it or find it in a world like today where our attentions are taken from us so easily. So, I, I mean, for, for me, like I find when I can disconnect from things and like, like not have this on me all the time, except to listen to music, for example, um, writing becomes easier or even practicing becomes easier um, in a way. Do you find that that's important for like your creative process, like introspection and how to find, and so is introspection important? And if it is, how do you personally find it in the world we live in? I mean, I think, 
introspection is important. I, I think I'm a fairly introspective person, you know, sometimes to a fault. Um, but I, I, I think that like introspection is part of the picture in like understanding oneself, you know, um, and like also how to like kind of let go of some of the, the self-obsessed, you know, inner monologue you know, um, and to, to be a little bit more mindful, but I don't know. I mean, like it, it's a balance, like it goes, it kind of goes back and forth for me, you know, like, it, like, um, I do think introspection is important in the pursuit of knowledge. I think it's one component of it, but it's an essential component. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, the, when you're talking about like, uh, the phone, like, you know, I, I, I think you got to unplug. I think you have to interact with like the physical world, you know? And I think, um, uh, I think it's really important to encounter like differing points of view, uh, in in person like in the world like you have to like because it's really easy you know online for instance to not see the human behind the behind the post you know what i mean like the, it's really easy to just see it as like an idea right and not actually have to the fact that it's, it's also a, it's easy a, to write it as an idea and not right not right. see yourself as a person very true and and so i think like you know, like encountering other people with different ideas than your own in person is really important. And I think that, you know, it's easier to do that when we're not glued to our, our screens, you know, um, for my own part, like, you know, this past summer, I, I took social media completely off my phone for, three or four months, you know, um, and just, uh, just like didn't interact with it. I, I mean, every once in a while I would, you know, post something using my computer, you know, but I did, I did, I didn't put it on my phone because I didn't want it in my pocket. I didn't want it like to be a continuous like impulse to, to check in, you know? Um, and I think in general, just like putting the phone down, you know, is, is just a good way to get in touch with like what your ideas really are and not what, not just be in a reactive space to what you're interacting with. You know what I mean? I mean, I think interacting and reacting is important, you know, but I think there needs to be a balance. So ultimately, yeah, that's what I would say. Nice. Well, thanks Dan. This was fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks yeah. for having me, Nico. <laughs> <laughs>